You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In part two of this three-part series, Stephen continues his conversation with Theodore Gray, co-founder of Wolfram Research and inventor of the computational notebook, picking up at the 1988 announcement of Mathematica, developing software on different machines, and early UX. Let's have a listen. So let's talk a little bit... um maybe about our original product announcement and um, the, the run-up to that. So this was June 23rd, 1988. It's about to be 30 years ago. Isn't that depressing? And uh, we had decided to do this uh, announcement of our product in California, in Santa Clara, Silicon Valley. And we'd invited all kinds of people to this product announcement. And actually, Steve Jobs, who had been uh, really a complete hermit, agreed to come to the product announcement, which was nice of him, um, as did the founders of Sun and uh, a bunch of other companies. Um, and uh, of course, there was the whole question of, you know, would the software actually be ready in time for the product announcement? Because in those days, and still today, we have the kind of old fashioned point of view that when you announce a product, you should actually be able to ship it and people should be able to use it. I, yeah, think, I remember there was a lot of shrink wrapping going on the night before. Yes, yes. There. I think there was some disk copying as well. I mean, uh, you know, in those days, a Mathematica arrived on, I don't remember how many floppy disks. It was like 10 or something, at least 10. Right. Well, we had these beautiful boxes that were very, well, very stylish boxes that, uh, that everything got put in. We had had, uh, you know, the, the other big element was that there was this book that I'd written, which was the documentation for Mathematica, which was published by Addison Wesley. And there was a whole set of moving parts having to do with how that book would get printed and delivered um, in time for the product announcement. And amazingly, it all came together, although one part of that involved me spending what must have been Memorial Day weekend or something in, um, uh, in Canada, working with somebody babysitting a photo typesetting machine, trying to get the film for the book produced, and then getting on a flight from there to Boston to literally, hand, you know, at the airport, hand the film for the final book to some production person from Addison Wesley who took it and got it printed. But all of that came together. And uh, yeah, I, I remember that we, were, we sold um, the very first sort of direct sold versions of Mathematica were sold through a company, I think, called Computerware, which was a, um, uh, a retail uh, software outlet. I mean, they, that was a time when people yeah, thought... Yeah, there was like a computer shop in uh, Palo Alto or something that right. needed boxes. Right, exactly. Um, and yeah, they, speaking, you know, of, speaking of things that have changed and haven't changed, that the way in which software is distributed is so unrecognizable now. Yes. No, in those days, there were things like egghead software and so on, and all these companies where you would physically go into the store, and it would be like a bookstore, and you'd see all these boxes of stuff. Um, and I used to entertain myself from time to time when I was traveling to different places, going into these software stores and, and looking at our products and talking to the salespeople and seeing uh, the kinds of things that they would say about our products, which were sometimes kind of horrifying. But I think um, when it came to... Um, um, so at our actual product announcement, we had a very, very interesting collection of people there and, and some interesting speeches. It's probably, it's a pity. I don't think a video got made, although, although a, a, a chap from Sun Microsystems named John Gage 
had the good sense to at least get many of the people who were at the announcement to at least sign a copy of the book that um, uh, that existed there. So we we have that kind of memento from the original product announcement, and of course we have lists of who was there and so on. And we, uh, as we get ready for our thirtieth anniversary, um, it's uh, it's time to contact all those people, find out what happened to them all. Um, let's see. We could talk also about some of the early users uh, of Mathematica. For example, the the group at University of Illinois that was doing calculus and Mathematica, Jerry Ewell and friends. Were you involved with those folk? Um, yeah, Jerry Ewell and Horatio Porta. Um, I mean, not not that much, but I, you know, went to a number of their classes and certainly spent a lot of time uh, sort of hand-holding with issues that they had. Um, but they yeah. always said, you know, they described their calculus courseware as a, you know, a, a existing because of the Mathematica notebook system, because of Mathematica. That was a sort of inspiration of... Um, and I think they were the first who really got it as far as uh, what the potential was for um, teaching and courseware and, you know, really got the idea that this is the medium. This isn't sort of a tool that you use alongside a textbook. It is the textbook uh, and, you know, sort of completely rethought from the ground up how you should teach calculus. Yeah. And in light fact, of the, yeah. the things they built, including the early notebooks they built are still in use teaching calculus to folk. And there's a, there's a company that, grew up around what they did um, that's uh, absolutely still using. I think, I think nowadays they're using uh, cloud versions of Wolfram Language and Mathematica and so on. Um, but back then, uh, but, but it's, it's the same material based on the same notebook technology. You know, maybe we should talk a little bit about kind of what happened uh, after the first version of Mathematica came out and sort of the development of interfaces. I mean, we had... Um, you worked on the Mac notebook interface and the next notebook interface, and then there was the Windows interface, and you didn't want to have anything to do with Windows. And, well, uh, yeah. At the time. At the time. The, I, it's still, really. But, uh, I mean, Windows is, it remains unpleasant to have to deal with. Actually, the, the new versions are really pretty nice. You know, you know, by the way, I am forced to use Windows on a daily basis now. And not only that, I am forced to use Windows 7, I think it is. Well, that's crazy. Um, Windows 10 is pretty nice. Well, Windows 7 is the only thing that the laser cutter driver software that I use works on. So, um, yeah, we, we uh, can, we'll, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about how uh, one goes from the uh, notebook interface to laser cutting, perhaps, perhaps later. The, but um, the view that we had back in those days was that somehow you know, you had talked about the front end as the eternal part of the system and the kernels come and go as they um, run different computations and so on. But um, from the point of view of software engineering, the way I think we thought about it was the kernel is kind of the, the big piece of software and the front end is almost this um, uh, build as you need it type system. Yeah, I think the idea was that every platform, you know, the, the, and it's not an unreasonable thing to have thought is that, you know, for the Mac, you use the, you know, the Mac development tools and the Mac APIs to build a Mac interface. And for Windows, you would do the same. And for, you know, X Windows or whatever else, uh, you know, you would use whatever the native tools are to develop something from scratch. But I think that, you know, the, the problem with that is that it turns out that the front end is actually also a very large, complicated piece of software with an awful lot of, you know, intricate moving parts. Uh, and especially when we get into the the math typesetting system, it's just really not something that you want to rewrite uh, on a different platform. And 
the fact that the documents need to be completely interoperable from one platform to another means that, you know, it, it, it just would have been very poor software engineering practice in the long run. Right. Uh, but, but I mean, what happened with us is that in the early 90s, um, as Windows kind of came online as something that could even run Mathematica and the notebook system, you know, we built a completely separate custom notebook system for Windows. And then I guess we started building one for X Windows as well. That was again, a completely separate custom thing. And then in the mid nineties, we had this giant project to kind of merge all of these code bases. And I think you were deeply involved in that. Certainly the, um, uh, John Fultz, the person who now runs our user interface group was, was a key figure in that whole process. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was actually, that's the closest thing to actual engineering uh, of, of software that I've been involved with, I think, uh, in the sense that it was a, I basically what we did was I went through the code line by line, every single piece of code and every place where there was a dependency on, you know, this is calling some Mac system routine or this, you know, this is doing something which in some way is not going to be the same somewhere else. I initially just marked it with a little, you know, a little macro definition or something saying, you know, here is a thing that's going to have to be different. And that gave us a metric. And then, then it became a question of, okay, now we have to go back and in every one of those places, we have to decide, are we going to, you know, create an, a layer of abstraction here? Are we going to, you know, essentially put in if defs here or something? Um, and, you know, we tried to sort of build a, a layer of, um, of glue between the, what was supposed to be sort of generic software that would run on every platform uh, calling routines that we had abstracted from the, the particulars of each operating system or each window system. And it's a tricky thing because if you try to do that too rigorously and actually build a completely, uh, you know, a layer that you don't violate, um, you then end up having a sort of lowest common denominator issue and you end up not taking advantage of very important things that people expect to work on one platform or another. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a delicate balancing act between where do we just, okay, we're just going to have a grotesque if def here and it's going to be different code for these next hundred lines or two lines or whatever versus, okay, this thing we can abstract cleanly and have, you know, a nice interface. Um, but, but what's really nice is that we had a metric and we could make graphs and we could see, okay, we've done, you know, 37% of the work that's necessary to get it to compile at least on this new platform. And that's, you know, that, uh, th that was nice. And we could watch it and then it eventually reached 0% and then it worked. Right. And one of the things that you often achieved in those days was actually correct prediction of the time it would take to do large software projects. It's kind of maddening from a strategic point of view to be told it's going to take nine months for this to happen. But on the other hand, the good news was in nine months, it actually did happen. Yes. Well, and, you know, uh, it's, it's, of course, cliche to criticize software engineers for never being able to predict schedules. Um, but this, I think this is a perfect example of why it is that you can't normally do that. Because this was a very, you know, a, a very particular situation in which it is possible to do that. And we, you know, in that situation, us competent software engineers got together and did that. But in many cases, especially with the kind of software that, you know, we were developing with Mathematica, um, you can't do it because you don't really know what the end point is. It's not like you have a, you know, you're inventing something new that has never been done before. It's not like you're, you know, writing an e-commerce system that's exactly like seven others that people have done before and you know exactly what needs to be done. 
it's like, well, I don't know, let's invent something. And you're not going to have a, a, you know, a fixed, reliable schedule for how long it's going to take you to invent something and then figure out, you know, invent the ways of achieving that, uh, you know, goal. So I think it's, it's kind of a, it's an unfair criticism uh, uh, sometimes to say software engineers never get their schedule Actually, right. So you, you did a lot better than, than most people I've ever seen at predicting how long projects, even ones that didn't have uh, clear sort of completion metrics would take. But I think in the, in the mid 90s, I mean, one of the things we ended up doing was actually throwing away the Windows code base that we had and replacing it with this kind of merged code base that you were just talking about. And we ended up with this very beautiful kind of completely merged uh, user interface, notebook interface code base, which for many years we were able to just keep running. Yes. Now, of course, in modern times, uh, well, you were involved particularly in the, you know, how are we going to make this work on iOS? And then how are we going to make this work in the cloud? And so now, shockingly, we have uh, completely separate code bases. Well, Yes. Not not completely, but somewhat separate code bases um, for those different platforms again. So it's kind of like uh, uh, we're, we're back to the early 90s in terms of the way that the software engineering landscape looks. Yeah, well, uh, as you know, I'm not that involved in that. And I, I am curious to know, actually, some of the details of you know, re-implement the entire typesetting system, I hope. The old PostScript layer um, is replaced by various kinds of wrapped S SVG layers and mm. things, but it's sort of the same idea as back in the in the yeah. early days. Um, but I think another thing that's worth perhaps talking about a little bit is that the polishing of the operation of notebooks and kind of how that happened and kind of um, uh, the process of what would now be called UX. I didn't really have that name at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... Um, well, I, I think there's a very straightforward answer to that, which is that... Um, all of the people, well, at least me and uh, and you, and several other people who are you know building the system and doing the actual line by line coding of the system, were also very heavy users of it. And, right. You know that it's it's like the old eat your own lunch uh, adage or something that you know if you're not using your own software, it doesn't really matter how many user interface experts you have, it's not going to be as good as as if you depend on it daily for things that you want to get done and you find all the rough edges and the irritations and all the little bugs and, and polish them out because they're your fault that they're there in the first place and they're annoying you and you know, you're going to go and fix them. Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember one thing that I've used actually as an example of the discipline of UX. I think this must've been what, probably 1988, 1989, we were, you and I were visiting, I think it was Sun Microsystems, and they wanted to show us this really cool new window system that they had. And uh, they were showing us the, the, um, uh, the scroll bars for windows. And um, the, uh, the scroll bar had this kind of thumb in the middle and right above the thumb was an arrow up and right below the thumb was an arrow down. And you were saying, that's yeah. just wrong. Well, of course it's wrong. I mean, that's insane. I mean, I don't even have to remember, like it just, just that description is just obviously insane. Um, right. Didn't but, they have it move the mouse cursor automatically? Like they, they patched around this problem by when you click that, it actually decoupled the mouse pointer from the actual mouse. Oh, and is that right? I think that's what it I, I did. I should say for, for people for whom it's not totally obvious why this is a bad idea. The, I mean, the basic problem is if you are going to, if you repeatedly click the arrow, the 
the you you can't repeatedly click the arrow because when you click the arrow the thumb moves and then your mouse isn't in the right place to click the arrow again unless as you say you kind of uh, forcibly move the mouse to make the things couple yeah i have this vague memory that that may be what they did which huh. you know <laughs> uh, um right. but yeah there's there's somebody i mean the the i think that the um the early mac people and the early you know human interface guidelines that they published were astonishingly good and to this day you see you know just you know video players all over the place uh, that just violate the most basic simple rules that were laid down you know in the mid 80s uh, and they just they just get it wrong and it's like do, do you people not read the book well we we uh, had to invent right and the things that we were doing you know, a lot of the things that are involved in a true sort of computational notebook are things that have never been seen before and, and that we had to invent. So like I remember one of the issues is when you type a uh, kind of a, a piece of mathematical text, usually one's used to one types a piece of ordinary text, um, one's used to the cursor just progressively advancing as one types more characters. But if you're typing something that is structured and perhaps mathematical, then as you add more content to a particular thing, the cursor may actually jump backwards because one's, you know, ended up with something that goes in the denominator or some such other thing. And so the question was, for, for a while, we had the problem that people just couldn't notice where the cursor went because, you know, they're used to just being able to track it with their eyes and having it go forwards. But sometimes the cursor jumped backwards. And I remember... Um, who invented that? Maybe I invented it. Maybe you invented it. I'm Amazing not sure. shrinking blob. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yes. I, I, I remember like being it. at your farm and talking about the amazing shrinking blob. So I, we certainly were, were in it together, so to speak. Yeah, I don't, I don't but, really but, remember. But I think it's, you know, it's a, an example of, I mean, there were many, like you say, there were many um, unique issues. Um, but there are also, you know, some very broad general principles that you could use. Um, to to you know come up with good solutions to some of those issues, and I think the amazing shrinking blob idea, you know, that's just basic human uh, optical physiology. Like if you if you see something blinking, your eye is drawn to it, and you can't help it. Like that's why blinking text and web pages is so irritating because you it's like you're physically incapable of keeping your attention away from something that's blinking. Well, to be fair, we were a bit sophisticated about the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, so with that, but but you start with the knowledge that oh, we need we need to get your eye over here. How can we do that? Well, there's a trick. You know, you flash it, and then your eye is there, whether you like it or not. And so then then it becomes a question of being responsible with that power, which early web pages were not, and were very annoying. And so we had to you know fine tune it, like how long does it last, and how big is it, and you know what's too much. Yeah, I wonder whether uh, the parameters still exist in the system where you can set do. the number of milliseconds. Really? They do. Oh, and, wow. Uh, they do. And they actually, so this is a feature which was hotly contested. And I think it was, it was a good example, actually, why it's important to use the system. Because, because just broadly speaking, people who were not users of Mathematica hated it. As, as, I don't know why exactly, but as a matter of principle. Whereas... I think people who actually type stuff in Mathematica on a regular basis thought it was a great feature. And there was a particular person who shall remain nameless who uh, systematically tweaked down those parameters very slowly so nobody would notice to make it smaller and smaller um, because he thought it was really annoying. Hmm. Well, um, and I, I believe they actually ended up too small and somebody should reset them a little bit bigger. Hmm. 
Well, I think it depends on the person because I think most people, as they see, they don't notice it. It's, it, it gets, um, uh, you know, I think it's really detected by the, you know, lateral genital nucleus or something. It doesn't even get to the visual cortex for most people. And they don't, it's sort of pre-attentively, they move their eyes and without knowing they did it. Um, and I think that the... Uh, well, I think uh, it's a little too small. I think it should be a little bigger currently. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll uh, you should send mail about that. But in any case, the, I think it depends because I think there's a small subpopulation that continues to report the appearance of that blob as a bug. It's a very small subpopulation and, you know, it's a measurable fraction of the world's population, so to speak, that will contact tech support and say, that, did you know that there's this weird, you know, black shrinking blob? But most people, it just does the right thing and they never notice. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the principles of, of um, designing something like the notebook system, you know, just make it do the right thing. And nobody notices how difficult it is to have that happen. I mean, I know things like, you know, what should the scrolling behavior be when an evaluation is happening that causes output to be generated that goes in this or that place? Um, I mean, I think it, it, took, it took a while for all of those things to get figured out and, and smoothed and polished and so on. And I think, uh, you know, the, the code base is no doubt full of all kinds of algorithms that probably yeah. you invented to do those things. Yeah, well, and that's one reason why it's kind of scary to re-implement something like that, because in many cases, exactly that kind of thing is not necessarily, you know, codified in some spec somewhere. It's implicit in the code. And if you just, you know, if you sort of rewrite something which, um, looks does more or less the same thing you're not going to end up with the same you know little tweaks and little bits of refinement and it may not be at all obvious from looking at the code that it is intentionally doing something in a certain way and it might not seem important so you might you know implement it in a way that seems simpler and cleaner but then you don't you know then you get this subtly annoying behavior yeah that, well uh, right it's taken for both the uh, mobile ios version and the cloud version both have taken basically eight years to to implement to the point where they're, they're they're nice and polished and i think what's interesting about those is that both of them have really quite different issues from um the desktop version i mean whether in the mobile case it's like you don't get to have a mouse you don't get to have hover effects and things mm -hmm. um and in the cloud you have all sorts of different trade-offs about how long it takes to get results back and uh, how you embed things in kind of the, the general web environment and so on. Yeah, well, it's certainly in the case of the mobile thing where you don't have a mouse and you, and you have fingers and everything. You know, I think Apple was completely correct in um, you know, basically throwing out their entire Windows system uh, and starting from scratch to build a mobile system, even though that meant every single app would have to be you know, basically rewritten from scratch. Uh, as far as its user interface goes, because they're just too different. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the flip side of keeping the old code base is that, you know, if you, if you try to stretch it too far, you take it to someplace where it's really out of its, um, its, its environment, um, then you end up with a crusty old thing that does all kinds of stuff that's, you know, was great when telephones were dialed with your finger, but now we have push buttons and that's, you know, you really don't want to have all the old brilliant and beautiful stuff from before that d doesn't really apply anymore. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. 
Next time, Stephen wraps up his conversation with Theodore Gray with a discussion on advancements in computational notebooks, developing the function dynamic, and manipulating symbolic objects. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.